Well, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you all in the building. It's wonderful. Good to not be talking to a camera, although there are people on the camera. Hello. Um, but this is a great passage. I'm really glad to be reading it with you. Uh, back in the day, I was at a church where we would often talk about the plateau. The plateau. It wasn't the good type of plateau. It wasn't the type of plateau at the top of a steep climb. You know those sort of plateaus? They're really good. Uh, you, you know, you get up the top of the hill and you just rest and you enjoy the view, the easy plateau. No, this plateau that we talked about at church was the plateau of growth. We even had a name for it. Uh, it would be called, it was called the Ayers Rock. I've got another picture. I don't know if it's coming up. There's an Ayers, ah, uh, there we go. This is my graphic editing skills. I don't know, is this a, I don't know if this is a common business term, the Ayers Rock graph, is it? Someone can tell me later, I have no idea. Anyway, the idea was there was fast growth, a plateau, and then decline. In church land, it's kind of hard to measure growth in faith, And so this graph, which we often talked about, measured growth in numbers. It was fast growth in numbers, followed by no growth in numbers, followed by decline. Now, you know, we could have an interesting discussion about this today, but we're not going to talk about numbers. Rather, I think we'll have a big question for you is, where are you on this graph? And now I am talking about faith. Are you growing? Are you plateauing? Or are you declining? I remember a sermon once uh, where the pastor was describing a conversation he held. Uh, He had asked someone in their mid to late 20s if they might serve in some way at church. And the person replied to him, nah, that's what young people do. Now, (laughs) that's right. Now, now this teacher, I'm sure some of you know of him, he is quite a large personality. And so he responded, no, 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 no. When I'm older, I'm going to be more passionate more enthusiastic, because in more, more of the glories of Christ. And I remember, as he said it, I know I'm quoting him wrong, but the moment was really memorable, because it was kind of etched into my mind. I remember thinking, I want what he's having, because I don't want to plateau. I don't want to level off in any part of my life. I always want to be running faster, surfing better, working more effectively. So why would I be content with no growth in my Christian life? Why would I ever want to plateau? Well, in today's passage, Jesus speaks to his disciples, and in some ways he says, if you're part of me, expect growth. Say no to the plateau. Uh, That's the little slogan for today. Uh, And if you want to get a bit corny, you can say woot to the fruit. Say no to the plateau and say work to the fruit. Uh, And I'm hoping by the end of this sermon uh, that we really will expect fruit. Uh, For the last few weeks, as we've been going through John, we've been sitting with Jesus and his disciples. And the disciples, they've been sitting in an upper room, a room being taught by their master. And I imagine this scene would be quite close and personal. It would be warm and deep. A lot of conversation has been about Jesus leaving His disciples have been troubled, and so Jesus has comforted them, even though he was troubled, telling them that he is leaving for a good reason, assuring them that even once he's gone, he will be closer than ever, because he will send his spirit. But at the end of chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus says, come, let's leave. And as the scene changes, so does the discussion. Jesus turns his attention to how the disciples should live after he goes. He's preparing them for a life of discipleship. And so, slogan, say no to the plateau, I think captures what Jesus says to his disciples today. That's my first point. 
I mean, many years before Jesus said, I am the true vine in verse 1, Isaiah the prophet also spoke about a vineyard. Uh, Thanks, Jeff, for reading that. In Isaiah 5, God describes his people as a vineyard. God did everything necessary so his vineyard would be fruitful. But Isaiah tells us that he looked for a crop of good fruit, good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. This is the tragic story of God's people. God had tenderly cared for his people like a farmer cares for his vine. He had created them, established them, protected them, fought for them, given them his law, dwelt with them. But when he came to look for fruit, there was nothing good. He looked for justice, but all he saw was bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but all he heard were cries of distress. His vineyard was rotten. His people were fruitless. It's a really tragic song. But then, if you flick forward to Isaiah 27, there's another song, another song about a vineyard. Sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. In days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will bud, and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Now, this song, not a tragic song, this is a beautiful song. God promises that in days to come there will be a fruitful vineyard, abundant fruit, fruit that will fill the world. And in John 15, Jesus announces, The day has come. Verse 1 I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Jesus fulfills what God's people were meant to be. So for these Jewish disciples who are listening, it's like Jesus is saying, a new age has arrived. The new covenant is here. If you want fruit, it's not about being a Jew. It's not about being part of the vineyard. No, if you want fruit, you've got to come to me, the true vine. Actually, the disciples need to do more than just come to him. They need to remain in him. I don't know if you noticed that. The word remain is used a lot in this passage. It can also be translated as abide, that idea of making a home, dwelling somewhere. And, you know, when you think home, it has a sense of permanence. When you think home, it kind of forces you to think of where you rest or where you lay your foundations. If you want fruit, like God expects, abide in Jesus. Permanently make your home in Jesus. If you want fruit, if you want growth, There can be no other way. I mean, that's how the vine metaphor works. The vine is the source of life. It provides sustenance and strength. If you're a branch, there's no other way to bear fruit other than being united to the vine. That's why Jesus says in verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. I think there's something pretty critical to pick up on here. You, me, we need Jesus Christ if we want to say no to the plateau. We can't get tired of Jesus. I sometimes think when we think growth, we think, what can I do? But the starting point needs to be Jesus, the vine, the source of life. Now, to these Jewish disciples, this was vital. It is like Jesus saying, don't go back to the law. Don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back to the old age. Abide in me, the true vine, and bear fruit. Now, this kind of reminds me a little of Colossians 3. Uh, Paul, in that one, he lists a lot of 
godly fruit, but he doesn't first say, go do, but rather he says, set your hearts and minds on things above, on your life now hidden in Christ. If you want growth, start and end with Jesus. The other little thing I think you can pick up on here is that God wants much fruit. Uh, Did you notice that as well? He prunes the garden so that in verse 2, it will be even more fruitful. God's pruning suggests his active care of the vineyard. It's his focused attention. So the vineyard does not just bear fruit, but it is even more fruitful. Or in verse 8, God will answer the disciples' prayer to bear much fruit. Much fruit. You know, ask the question, what are you desiring at the moment? What are you expecting if you're part of the vine, united to Jesus? Anything? Fruit or much fruit? Say no to the plateau and remain in Jesus and bear much fruit. Because if you don't, there is danger. Verse 6, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus could have been a lot simpler. If you don't remain in me, there'll be no fruit. But rather, he describes a more lengthy process and a more severe outcome. The branch that is not connected to the vine is thrown away and it withers. The natural result of being away from life, withering, fading, falling. Now, I quite like my garden. I liked it a lot during lockdown. It is not a very flashy garden if you ever came and visited, but I'm not much of a gardener. And so often my flowers kind of droop. I see my shrubs lose their leaves. I see decay creep in. And it really isn't pleasant to look at. How much worse when you consider this being faith? A withering faith. A fading faith. This is what happens when you do not abide in Jesus. Your faith will wither. And while this is natural, what comes next is judgment. The branch is picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. This is a warning with the aim of urging the disciples to remain in Jesus no matter the cost. Say no to the plateau. Remain in Jesus and bear much fruit. On to our next point. I'm just going to grab some water. All right, yeah. Say no to the plateau and pursue the fruit of love, joy, and mission. I don't know if you've been in one of those conversations before. It happens to me a bit, actually, when uh, someone's talking to you and they're assuming that you understand all the words they're saying. Now, often happens with me and musicians. Always just nodding along. And uh, so that's what I kind of do. But I wonder if the disciples might have felt a bit like this with Jesus. He's talked a lot about fruit, but what is it? Uh, Fortunately, in this next section, Jesus unpacks the vine vine metaphor. The vine imagery sort of gives way until verse 16, and there's not so much talk about vines, which can sound a little impersonal, but rather there's talk about love. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. You can't get much more personal than that. You can't get much more reassuring. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, writes about these verses. That he truly loves us 
we may confidently believe. For he himself is at pains to assure us of it in so many words. He does not leave it to an inference, although the inference might be safely drawn from the 10,000 love deeds of his life and death. But he deliberately declares his love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Do you doubt his words? Spurgeon then goes on to describe the love the Father has for the Son. He says it's a love with no beginning. He says it's a love with no end. It's a love that is immeasurable. It's a love that is intimate. It's a love that is immutable, which means unchanging. And Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So believers in Christ, you are loved with an infinite, immeasurable, intimate, immutable love. Remain in the vine, remain in this love. And as I read these words this week, I was left thinking, why would you ever leave this love? But our hearts are deceptive, and we often believe the lie that God doesn't love us. Add to that, the world tempts us with pleasure and treasure, and our flesh is weak. And so sometimes we wonder, and sometimes we run from this love. But God has spoken to you this morning. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain. Remain. Remain in this love. But how do you remain? Verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's love and remain in his love. If you're in Jesus' love, you're in right relationship with him. You know him as Lord and Saviour. And so it's logical then that you keep his commands. I was chatting with someone recently and they asked me, you know, why shouldn't I just wait until I'm on my deathbed and at that point turn and trust in Jesus Christ? I mean, why not, they said, enjoy all the pleasures and treasures of this world and do that with no moral restraint, and then ask forgiveness in that final hour. And that kind of thinking reveals we don't really know who Jesus is. We look to him to get us out of a fix, but we don't know him. If we know him, if we're in his love, then we know him as the Christ, God's chosen king. And if that's who he is, and we are in his love, then the right way to respond is to submit to his rule and keep his commands the most important of which is to believe. And as we do that and are united to the vine, fruit will flow. And that's what I think the rest of this passage helps us see. First, there's the fruit of joy. There is joy in knowing Christ. I heard it described like this, joy. If you're in a boat, joy is not the splash of water on the face, you know, that's there temporary and just refreshes you briefly. No, joy is the deep water that keeps you afloat and brings contentment to your soul, joy. There's joy from knowing who Jesus Christ is. That's kind of how it worked for John the Baptist. Chapter 3, you can read it later. John the Baptist is full of joy when he hears Jesus' voice. He describes, just like in verse 11, how his joy is complete. Where'd that joy come from for John? It's because he knew who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was the one that he and all of Israel had been waiting for. He knew Jesus was the one who was above all, the one who was from heaven, the one who speaks the word of God, the one who the Father loves, the one who gives the Spirit without limit. And he is the one who loves his disciples. Believers in Christ, the one who is above all, has loved you. Joy. Say no to the plateau. 
pursue joy, meditate on Christ, all he is and all he has done for you. Second, there's the fruit of love, verse 12 to 14. I had a friend who told me once that if you want to get something across, you need to repeat it three times. Maybe not the exact same words, but, you know, the same ideas three times. Been a parent now for, I don't know, 12 years. Three times is a little low, I reckon. (laughs) Uh, But Jesus, he repeats the command to love one another four times. Four times in the last two chapters. As he prepares his disciples for his departure, the words he wants echoing in their hearts and in their minds is, love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. It's a big love. It's to love as Christ has loved us, verse 12. It's to love by laying down our lives. It's a love that disadvantages us ourselves for the sakes of others. And sometimes, I do this, we make the mistake that we can do the Christian life on our own as individuals. It's not possible. You can't love one another if you're doing the Christian life on your own. The fruit of the vine is love for one another, Christian family. And I suppose a measure of this love is maybe how you view church. Do you see yourself as an attender or do you see yourself as part of the family? Do you limit your time to one hour on a Sunday and one hour for Bible study during the week? Or do you seek to care for one another? during the week? Do you pray for one another at other times? Do you invite people into your home? Or more importantly, do you invite people into your mess and allow your Christian family to love you? Say no to the plateau. Remain in Jesus and pursue the fruit of loving one another. Last bit of fruit, verse 15 and 16. I have small goals in life. One of the very small goals I wanted was that for a coffee shop to know my name and to know my order. Uh, it's very small. I, it has happened to me only on one occasion, uh, and I felt very special. I even felt a little bit privileged. Uh, I liked how I made it into this special group where out of all the coffee drinkers, they knew me. Uh, well, my goals are too small because in verse 15 to 16, Jesus says to his disciples, welcome. Welcome to the most privileged group in the world. Uh, Welcome to the the greatest group in the world, a group that I call not slaves, not servants, a group that I call friends. A group that I've made known everything that I've learned from the Father. Jesus is saying, welcome to the most privileged group in the world. But with this privilege comes a job, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. To be appointed and then go... This is apostle language. This is the same sort of language you use of all the apostles, of a gospel worker, of a gospel spreader. As they go with this gospel, as they head out with God's word, they will bear fruit. And this fruit, like no other fruit, this fruit will last. It will remain. The fruit is of more people believing that Jesus is the Christ. And NCA Church, we've seen this fruit. You are this fruit. And the gospel is bearing fruit across the whole world today. So say no to the plateau and go. But the final thing for today's passage, and this is really a very brief final point, is kind of changing the slogan. As you go, say no to the world. 
and expect hostility. Uh, Jesus makes it clear in verse 19 that they do not belong to the world, but they have been chosen out of the world. He seems to be at pains to tell them that. You've been chosen out of the world. It's like the disciples have changed team. And the opposing team, the world, it looks okay, but it's not the nicest team. Sure, the world loves you and when you're in it and playing for them and agreeing with them, it will love you, verse 19, as its own. But when you're chosen out of the world and when you join Jesus' team and are part of his vine, the world hates it. Actually, Jesus is pretty straight up. The world will hate you, he says to the disciples. Hate is a pretty strong word and maybe we might want to tone it down a bit. The world will be apathetic towards you. Or, or the world will not like you that much. But how would you describe how Jesus was treated? Or how the world reacted to his teaching? Surely hate is the best word. Because only hatred can explain how the Messiah ended up crucified. And so as the disciples come out of the world and remain in Jesus, they will be persecuted as Jesus was persecuted. And you just have to think about this. These Jewish disciples will go and they will proclaim there is a new way to the Father. They will claim that Jesus is God. They will basically be saying the ancient Jewish religion that is much love is in some ways over because it has been fulfilled in Christ. Imagine hearing that as a devout Jew. There will be hatred. And many of these disciples will die. Say no to the world and expect hatred. Today, the scene is different. Claiming that Jesus is God will not lead you to being stoned. But Jesus' teaching today is hated. It will bring some heat. But if we belong to the vine, which is the best place to be, and if we don't belong to the world, there will be heat and there will be hostility. Well, I wonder how God has spoken to you this morning. I don't think it's uncommon at all to feel a little stuck as a Christian. I've felt stuck many times. No matter what your age is, sometimes it's easy to look back and think, I miss those days when everything was new and everything was fresh, where I had energy, where I had time, where I had less responsibility. And when you consider life now, it's easy to feel stuck. It can feel pretty easy to be on a plateau. But did you notice that this passage was not about making more time? It wasn't about having more energy. It wasn't about youthful excitement. It was about one person, Jesus Christ, the true vine, the source of life, the one who is from above, who loves his disciples as the Father loved him. So, Camray, say no to the plateau. Make your permanent home in Jesus and expect fruit. Our Heavenly Father, you are so good. Uh, you know, after years of looking for fruit in fruitless Israel, uh, you sent Jesus from above the true vine. Please, might we remain in him. Might we make our home in him. And might we expect much fruit. Amen.